attendance books go by in your row, we would greatly appreciate it if you would just check that box, and um, we'd love to be able to stay in touch with you, if, if at all possible, for when you pass through again. Um, but to all, uh, welcome. And I want to invite you to join me in the book of Jonah, chapter 1. And we will finish the first chapter today, I promise. Well, most likely. Jonah chapter 1, and the title of today's message as we continue this series on God's scandalous grace is Prophet Overboard. And those of you who know the book of Jonah know what's coming. And uh, we're going to begin reading, In uh, we're going to pick up the story in verse 9. This is where they found Jonah and have launched an inquisition into who this prophet is, who this man is that's sleeping in the middle of all of this just incredible storm. And they begin to grill him. And it says in verse 9, Jonah answered them and he said, I'm a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, the God of the heavens, who made the sea and all the dry land. Then the men were seized with a great fear and said to him, what have you done? The men knew he was fleeing from the Lord's presence because he had told them. So they said to him, what should we do so that the sea will calm down for us? For the sea was getting worse and worse. And he answered them, pick me up and throw me into the sea and it will calm down for you. For I know that I am to blame for this great storm that is against me. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they couldn't because the sea was raging against them more and more. So they called out to the Lord, Please, Lord, don't let us perish because of this man's life, and don't charge us with innocent blood, for you, Lord, have done just as you pleased. Then they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. And the men were seized with a great fear, by the great fear of the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. So we see in this story here, in the conclusion of what's going on here in chapter 1, that there were people in a desperate situation. What do you do when you've exhausted all possibilities? When you're in the midst of a, a desperate plight, where, where's your go-to? They, they've, they've cried out to their gods. They've thrown things overboard, they've tried everything, and it didn't fix their problem. Some of us know exactly what that's like. We, we maybe get into a home improvement project, or we're trying to troubleshoot something in our home, and it seems like no matter what we do, the problem only gets worse. For these sailors, that's the situation they were in. They began to recognize that there was nothing that they could do to save themselves. It sounds a little bit like the gospel, like our human situation, the plight in which we find ourselves. Scripture teaches that there is none righteous, no, not one. There's none of us who can fix our situation. And so what we're going to see here in the midst of this storm and the subsequent Salvation, as it were, we're going to see a picture of the gospel. We're going to see 
a pointing forward to what Jesus did upon the cross. And so, as we do so, we, we're going to see that there are two parallel parties here in need of God's saving grace. Both Jonah and the sailor, and while they're literally and figuratively in the same boat, there's also a difference between them, and we're going to see that as the story unfolds. But the first step towards salvation is that we must recognize our condition. We've got to recognize the, the place in which we find ourselves. You see, they were in really two different places here. The sailors now for, for a period of time have recognized that they were in dire straits. They had a problem that they couldn't fix. And it was really, really bad. Jonah, on the other hand, was asleep. A lot of us find ourselves in the same place spiritually. For some of us here this morning, we are in a place of desperation. We, we are like the sailors calling out to God. But some of us are also in a place like where Jonah, where there's apathy, where there's, ah, what's the big deal? We're asleep spiritually like we talked about last week. In verse 10, we're told that the sailors were seized by a great fear. One writer says these men recognized their humanity in the face of such divine power. And while the storm was not their fault, they were still going to die. You see, when it comes to our sin, Scripture teaches that we're to blame. And the Scriptures teach that the same fate awaits us as what the sailors were about to face, and that is death. Not just a physical death. We all know that at some point we're going to breathe our last here upon this earth. We're mortal. And we will go the way of every single man and woman who's walked the face of this earth with the exception of Jesus and uh, as he rose again from the dead and conquered death. And, and, of course, Scripture talks about Enoch and Elijah having a special dispensation there. But by and large, we're not, we're not getting out of here alive. That, that's, that's what we know. But beyond that, there's something more serious, and that is a, a real and eternal separation from God. Jesus speaks of this over and over again. We'll never come to a place of genuine confession of sin until we're brokenhearted over our sin, until we recognize just how serious our situation is. For some of us this morning, we've come in and, and, and we, don't, we don't know Christ and we really are kind of oblivious to our situation, to the plight, because it doesn't feel like the storm is all that bad. We may feel like we're pretty good people. We've done okay in life. We've gotten a long way through our wit and our charm and, and being a halfway decent citizen. But scripture teaches us that, that whether we're in the place of the sailors or whether we're in the place of Jonah, we're still in, in the midst of the storm and we're still heading on the path to death. And, and, and we do much better, as we're going to see through this story, to be in the place of the sailors and recognize and come to grips with our plight rather than to rationalize it, to sleep it away, to ignore it. But you know, it's not just unbelievers who can do that, it's believers as well. When God is trying to wake us up, we, as we, again, as we talked about last week, can be asleep spiritually. We can ignore, we can suppress and quench the work of the Spirit of God in our hearts.
Jonah is an interesting case study here at this point. Scholars debate over whether or not Jonah here turns to God in genuine repentance. He comes up with a solution to the storm. He says, pick me up and throw me into the sea so that it will calm down for you. For I know that I'm to blame for this great storm against you. It seems like Jonah is admitting his culpability there in verse 12. I know that I am to blame. He seems to be at least partially contrite here. In verse 9, he acknowledges, I mean, we, we touched on this a couple weeks ago, but he says, I'm a Hebrew. He acknowledges who he is, his identity as a, as a person of the covenant people of God, as a member of that covenant community. He declares his allegiance to God in verse 9. I worship the Lord, Yahweh. He even admits to them that he's on the run, verse 10, that he was fleeing from the Lord's presence. He takes the blame for the storm in verse 12, and he's even willing to die so that the sailors can be spared. This is all pretty powerful, but based on what we see here, it seems like Jonah still does not completely get it. And here's why. I don't think Jonah is quite there yet. And this is why I think that. First of all, there's no language of brokenhearted repentance. There's this acknowledgement, sort of this, like, yeah, I'm to blame. Yeah, this is my fault, like in general terms. But this personal confession of sin and repentance doesn't seem to be there. He still is not praying, according to the text. He's not crying out to God. All of his interaction is between him and the other sailors. There's nothing vertical going on here at this point that we can see from the text. There's no crying out to God. There's no confession of sin. None of that. He's just sort of simply stating facts. This is who I am. This is what I've done. And it's my fault. And here's how you fix the problem. Most importantly of all, most indicatively of all, is he's still unwilling to go to Nineveh. That There's no turn in Jonah's heart where he says, okay, God, I'm going to obey. I'm going to listen. I'm going to do as you ask. I think, I think Jonah is a lot like you and I. Some of us have stories and conversion stories, and even in our Christian life, where God just blasted you with something, and you had this about face. Some of you could give, some of you could give testimony to that where you remember a specific time where God grabbed a hold of you and broke you, and you knew that, that you had nowhere else to turn, and your life from that day on was markedly different. But for many of us, and I would maybe even venture to guess, most of us were a lot like Jonah. We're very slow in this process of repentance. Jonah kind of puts one foot out there and acknowledges who he is. He's part of the covenant community of God. He acknowledges that he's to blame for this storm. And he's even willing to die. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But his, his repentance doesn't seem to be complete. He's still unwilling to obey God. You know, as we talk about God's scandalous grace here in this story, I, I don't think Jonah was in... in Chapters 2, 3, and 4 will unfold this even further. I don't think Jonah has been smitten with God's scandalous grace yet. 
He's not yet overwhelmed with his sin and disobedience. But I'm struck in this story at just how patient God is with us. I'd love to stand before you this morning and say that I'm a quick learner. That God has to teach me a lesson one time. Like you, you ever go, you ever going through school, or some of you who are still in school, and you're like, come to a, a subject or a topic, and you're like, Did I, didn't we go over this in fourth grade? Didn't, didn't we cover this two years ago in math? And there's a reason why teachers and the curriculum developers had put, it, put that in there. You know why? Because we need repetition. We're not always, most of us are not going to learn it the first time. And spiritually speaking, most of us are in the same boat. In fact, some of us are really, really slow learners. And Jonah is a really slow learner. I'm so thankful that God put slow learners in the scriptures, aren't you? God is patient. God could have blasted Jonah out of the air and ended the story right here. It could have been a one-chapter book, but it's not. The book of Jonah, as do so many other passages of Scripture, just remind us how patient God is. Aren't you so glad for God's patience today? Aren't you so glad for God's steadfast, loving kindness that pursues us in our sin and in our folly and in our disobedience. All logic would have said, just give up on the guy. He's had chances, just in chapter one alone, he's had multiple chances here to turn. And yet he still seems, without being deeply moved by God's grace, God's forgiveness. How many of us this morning are living in a place like Jonah of partial repentance? I mean, I would venture to guess that almost everybody, if not everybody in this room, will acknowledge in general ways that, yes, I'm a sinner. Yes, I've messed up. But when was the last time you cried out to God, forgive me, for blank, for saying this, for thinking this, for neglecting this, for hurting this person in this way. God, that was wickedness. That was rebellion against you. That was, that was defaming and dishonoring someone created in your image. God, I come to you and beg for your forgiveness and ask for restoration and wholeness. When was the last time we prayed with that kind of deep, broken-hearted repentance? It's one thing to go through life saying, yeah, I know I'm a sinner. God, I just don't get it right sometimes. But aren't we all? Like, that sounds humble, but it doesn't get to the heart of the matter that I am a sinner and I have done this sinful thing and I need forgiveness for this. That takes a broken-hearted humility. And if we're not at that place, we're like Jonah, where we've got one foot in the pool of repentance, but we're not ready to jump all the way in. And if you've been in church long enough, you know the spiritual sounding language, and you can get by and we can fool ourselves. But to, to speak like David does in Psalm 51, 
with, with utter brokenness? Jonah's not there yet. Wait till chapter 2. But he's not quite there yet. The first place that we need, must go to understand the gospel is we've got to recognize our condition. The second thing is we have to admit our helplessness. Look at verse 13. It says, Nevertheless, the men rode harder to get back to dry land. But they couldn't because the sea was raging against them more and more. So they called out to the Lord, Please don't let us perish because of this man's life. And don't charge us with innocent blood. For you, Lord, have done just as you pleased. The sailors began to recognize that they were helpless to get out of their plight. Jonah had told them what needed to be done. Toss me into the sea. And it says they rode harder. They didn't like that solution. And, and you got to, I mean, we got to empathize with them, right? I mean, who wants to be the person that says, all right, let's do it. Who's going to be that first guy that's like, all right, Jonah, throw him over your shoulder. Here we go. These were, these were people who were in the midst of recognizing that there was, they were in the middle of this holy and God-centered, like, literal storm. There was, they were in the middle of something that they had never, ever seen before. And, and they were not ready to just toss the guy into the water. And so they were going to keep trying of their own strength. In fact, that, 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 that phrase, rode harder, in the Hebrew, it, it indicates they dug into the waves. You ever been like that? Ever been in a, in a storm out on a, on a little, you know, 10-foot aluminum boat or something, and all of a sudden things got choppy, and, and, uh, or your, your, your motor died or something, and you had to row back, and it was late, or the, the weather was awful? It can be kind of a scary feeling. I can't even imagine what this was like. I've never been at the, in, a, in a big body of water in a storm before. I, I, I don't know what they were experiencing. I've seen lots of movies about it. I can imagine a little bit. And these sailors, though, they, they, they still wanted to find a, a way out. And, you know, a lot of times when God convicts us of our sin, we still want to try to figure it out ourselves. Rather than go to that place of repentance and cry out to him, we're still trying to get ourselves out of the storm. My brothers and sisters, we can't. We don't have a solution for our sin. Only God does. We, don't, we can't fix many, if not most, of the storms that we're in the middle of. Only God can. These sailors had to get to a place where they admitted their helplessness before God. But then finally we see here that we must have a substitute. The sailors could not save themselves. They tried and they failed. They needed another to be sacrificed in their place. Jonah told them in verse 12, pick me up and throw me into the sea that it will calm down for you. For I know that I'm to blame for this great storm that's against me. Somehow Jonah knew that if he went overboard, it would fix everything. Here's another indicator that I think Jonah wasn't quite fully ready in a place of repentance. <laughs> Jonah was asking them to do the work. Do you notice that? Like, he's not willing to just jump overboard and say, guys, I'll, I'll take care of this. I'm to blame. He was still putting it on them. And, and, and they didn't want to. 
But they recognized after a period of time that that was the only way. And so verse 15 says, they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea. And the sea stopped its raging. If you know your Bible, you know that this theme is cover to cover throughout the scriptures. That we're in a problem, we have a problem, we're in a plight that we cannot fix, we cannot get ourselves out of, and another needs to die in our place. This was the entire picture of the sacrificial system. You remember in Leviticus, the offerer would of the sacrifice would lay hands on the sacrificial animal before the sacrifice was made. That wasn't just meaningless uh, repetition or a process, but there, there was a picture there as the sacrificer was symbolizing his, his guilt being transferred to the animal, to this unwitting animal that was about to die for a very specific for a very specific reason. Laying hands on the victim suggested not only identification or ownership, but also a vicarious substitution for the offerer himself. The sins of the man or the woman offering the sacrifice were transferred to the victim. The sacrificial system provided a means, a provisional means, a temporary means for God to deal with the uncleanness of Israel's sin in relation to his holiness. The sacrifices, especially the scapegoat in Leviticus 16, were a means of expiation of the nation's sins when an animal died in the place of another. You see, from the very beginning of Scripture, it was clear that penalty for sin was death. And God did not institute the sacrificial system just simply for the Israelites to have something to do or even something to keep them busy during their worship service. There was a very distinct picture being made. The guilty one who deserved to die was going to be able to live because another was going to die in his or her place. These sailors were going to die. And even though the storm was not their fault, as sinners, they, they were guilty too. They needed another to go in their place. Remember the story of Abram and Isaac? I mean, what a gut-wrenchingly powerful picture of this very truth. That God called Abraham to sacrifice his, his only son on Mount Moriah? And Abraham there, standing above his son, you, you, you can't even, I, I, I can't fathom as, as a parent myself what was all going through Abraham's mind. Hebrews gives us a little glimpse way in the New Testament Abraham believed that God was powerful enough to raise Isaac from the dead. That's what was going through his mind. He was clinging to God's promises. You said that a great nation would arise through my offspring. Here he is, and now you're asking me to kill him? 
And just before he brought the knife down on Isaac, God stayed his hand. But the story doesn't end there, does it? What's waiting? What's caught in the thicket? A ram. A substitute. God does not say, there'll be no death today, Abraham. Something was still going to die. Why? Not because they needed something for dinner that night, but because sin must be paid for. A holy God can't say, you know what? Let's forget this whole storm here. Jonah, whatever you want to do, it's fine. We'll figure out another way than there. There was sin, and sin had to be paid for. So in our story here, Jonah becomes that sacrifice. I don't know his motives. We can't, the, the text does not tell us tone of voice, facial expressions, body language. Jonah says, pick me up and throw me in the water. We don't know, and, and I, I, I tend, based on what I'm reading here at this point, I don't think Jonah was moved by this tremendous compassion for the sailors and was, again, was overcome with the guilt of his sin. I think he was like, I, I, think, I think there was something going on in his heart, and he's like, these people don't deserve this. They're terrified. And so he becomes the sacrifice in their place. I don't know how tender his heart was towards these pagans, towards these sailors, but the, the, the evidence that we have of his interactions with them doesn't seem that he's all that uh, moved with compassion toward them. But despite not knowing his motives, Jonah, in essence, was saying, I will take the wrath of the angry waves so that you don't have to. What's amazing is that even though Jonah was not yet gripped by the scandalous grace of God, he becomes a powerful and a beautiful picture of the gospel. Which is just one more reminder that God, God can use us even in our disobedience and even in our imperfection, even when our motives are off, even when our attitude's not right, even when we're walking in disobedience, God's still at work and can use dumb people, sinful people, foolish people, disobedient people to accomplish his will. And to create an amazing salvation. This all points us to Jesus Christ. There is not a one-for-one one comparison between what was going on in Jonah chapter 1 and what Jesus did for us in the New Testament. Jonah was suffering because of his own sin. Jesus never did. Jonah was in a place of disobedience. Jesus was the perfect obedient son. And yet you can't miss the parallels. For example, in Isaiah, we read, he him, yet he himself, speaking of this coming Messiah, Jesus Christ, he bore our sicknesses, he carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted, but he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. The punishment for our, our peace was upon him, and we're healed by his wounds. 
We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. That's, that's what theologians call the penal substitution of Christ, that he went in our place. The Father punished Jesus for your sin and for mine. Jonah here becomes a type of Christ. Even in his disobedience, Jonah points us to Jesus. Jesus willingly went to the cross and bore our sin. He had nothing, he, he had nothing to do with it. There was no, not even one ounce of blame on him. Nothing whatsoever in him or in his actions merited that he die. He'd done nothing wrong. It was us. Us who deserved eternal separation from God. And yet Jesus took our place. As the hymn, Man of Sorrows, tells us, bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place, condemned he stood. Peter, in his first epistle, would later make this even more clear. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds, you and I have been healed. The unknown second century author of a letter that's been called the Epistle to Diognetius expressed these poetic words. Oh, the sweet exchange. Oh, incomprehensible work of God. Oh, the unexpected blessings that the sinfulness of many should be hidden in one righteous person, while the righteousness of one should justify many sinners. The sweet exchange. When I was a kid, I used to collect baseball cards, and I never, uh, I never traded much with my friends because uh, as much as I kept up on, on the world of baseball cards and their values and everything, I didn't I never wanted to get ripped off. I never wanted to be on the losing end of a trade. And so I often, I found other ways to acquire. I'd save up my money and get the cards that I wanted to get. And I just didn't have enough trust in my friends to, to make a good deal. I always figured that maybe they knew something that I didn't, I didn't know, you know. And uh, I was always worried about getting the, the raw end of a deal. And, and, and as you look at, what took place upon the cross, uh, Jesus, I mean, he got the raw end of the deal. The, the, there was no doubt about it. All the, all the problem and all the sin and all the weight of guilt was on us. And yet he made that trade. It was an unfair trade. <laughs> he died, we get to live. It was our guilt. He was innocent. And yet he stood in our place condemned. 
as we reflect on how these truths impact us, the, f- the first thing that I think we need to remember is that we never outgrow the gospel. If, if in our hearts we're hearing some of this this morning and we're thinking, yeah, I know about Jesus dying on the cross, we're going to have communion in a little bit, so we've got to talk about that, and like, I want to get on to stuff that's really going to help me and help fix my marriage, help, help me raise my kids, help me pay my bills, help me with my thought life or my attitude or whatever it is, we're missing the point and we don't understand the depth of the gospel. It's the gospel that we come back to every day, moment by moment. I am a great sinner, he's a great savior. We never outgrow the gospel. The gospel is not just for what takes place in the children's wing over here. It's it's not the training wheels of the Christian faith. I love how Tim Keller puts it. He says it's, it's not the ABCs of the Christian faith. The gospel is the A to Z of the Christian faith. We, we will never outgrow the need for the gospel. And I would, I would encourage you that really our need is to go deeper into the gospel. We will never, ever move on from the gospel. That he's a great savior and I'm a great sinner. Desperately in need of the scandalous grace of God. Day by day, moment by moment. And when we're gripped by the scandalous grace of God, that as undeserving sinners, Jesus Christ has died in our place, I think our response will be much like the sailors in verse 16. It says, The men were seized by a great fear of the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Scholars debate over whether the sailors were converted here, or whether this was just sort of a get me out of here, and then they went back to their life. Obviously, we don't know. We know nothing more of the sailors beyond chapter 1. We don't hear their stories. And as a pastor, I've, I've seen that, that situation where, hey, we're in a really tough spot. Jesus is my favorite now all of a sudden, and I'll do whatever I can to be Christian here for a little while and honor Jesus. And then when the seas get calm again, I'll go back to the way I live. I've, I've seen that time and again here. But I tend to think, based on the evidence that we have here, that there was a, a genuine conversion here, at least among some of the sailors. They didn't just simply throw him overboard and say, all right, done with that one, now let's get back to where we were going. It says a great fear of the Lord came over them. They recognized that they were in the presence of a God that they had never encountered before. And it says that they used the covenant name of God, they referred to him as Yahweh. And they offered a sacrifice to him, and they made vows. Their prayer even demonstrates in verse 14 this humility. You, Lord, have done as you pleased. Based on what we have here, I I think that these sailors were converted, and they came to a place of worship. When we meet God's grace in a powerful way, we can't, it's impossible to just shrug our shoulders It's impossible to say, thanks God for getting me out of that scrape and move on. When we encounter God's scandalous grace, it shakes us to our core. And we can't help but be moved deeply. And my prayer this morning is that as we meditate and reflect on what Jesus Christ has done for us, and as we come to the table here in a few moments to celebrate the the broken body of our Lord and the blood that Jesus shed that we are deeply affected 
by God's grace, that we would be seized by a great fear of the Lord, and that our lives would be changed. The book of Jonah is full of irony. Daniel Timmer points out that Jonah's anti-missionary activity in fleeing from the Ninevites has ironically resulted in the conversion of these non-Israelites. And these mariners aboard the ship responded to God's grace and salvation with humility and a great fear of the Lord. How about you this morning? Did you encounter God's grace? As you have encountered God's grace, as you will encounter God's scandalous grace in fresh ways, how will you respond? Will you allow the Spirit of God to move you, to convict you, to bring you to a place of worship and fear? Or will you turn and dig your heels in and keep running? My prayer is that it's the former. You allow God's grace to soften your heart and allow him to bring you close. I think that's what happened with these sailors. Jonah's not there yet. He'll get there. Through some more fits and starts, he'll get there. Let's, let's humble ourselves and be, be a little bit faster learners maybe than Jonah. But recognize that God's got grace for slow learners too. In a moment here, we're going to pray. Um, if you've never had communion here at Brown Corners before, what will happen is after we have a, have a time of prayer, uh, you can just come on up to your seats. If it kind of the flow works better if you if you leave on your right and kind of make a circle and 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 return on the other side of your pew, on your pew there. Um, we've got three different stations here, so you can kind of go whatever is geographically closer to your location there. Um, in the center in the center one here, we have some gluten free bread if that's of help for you. We also have some baskets on each of the tables, and, and that's for, uh, we, we, once a month here on Communion Sunday, we take up a benevolence offering for those in our church family that have, might have special needs that arises. And so if you feel led to give over and above your normal giving, we would invite you to do that, but know that there's no obligation to do so. And that is just a way of us being able to try to bless those in our church family who have, who have various needs. Jesus, Scripture tells us that the night before he went to the cross, he shared this meal with his disciples, and he, he pointed to the bread. He pointed to the wine, and he said, these are pictures. This bread represents my body. This wine represents my blood. And he says, when you gather together, he says, I want you to partake of these in remembrance of me. In a way of reflecting upon what I've done on the cross and in rising again from the grave. But it's not just a time of remembrance, it's also a time of receiving God's grace in our lives. 1 Corinthians, I think it's 10, 16, tells us that when we partake in communion, we participate in the body and blood of Jesus Christ. I don't claim to fully understand that, but there's a, a special uh, communion that goes on between us and Jesus as we partake of communion. But there's also, a, finally, a future aspect to it. Jesus said that he's not going to have partake in, in, in the fruit of the vine until that day when we gather together 
and his kingdom and can enjoy it together with him. And so we, we partake in hope, looking forward to that day when we'll do so with Jesus Christ. This morning, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, we want to invite you to participate here. You don't have to be a member at Brown Corners, but I believe Scripture teaches you do need to be uh, a Christian, a follower of Christ, in order to participate in this. And we want to, want to welcome you to join us here. I want us to take a moment here, as we always do, and just bow for a moment of silence to give you a chance to talk to God right where you are, to just sort of thank Him for what He's done and, and receive His forgiveness if, if He convicts you of sin and you need to confess that before Him. Let's just use these quiet moments to do that, and then I'll, I'll pray after a moment of silence and you can come forward in this time of worship. Let's bow. patient and gracious Heavenly Father. We thank you this morning that in your kindness you, you do deal patiently with us. You are forgiving and slow to anger, your word tells us. Abounding in steadfastness. see this morning a picture of some folks who I think were truly transformed by your grace. We see your prophet who still I think is not quite there. He's nudged a little closer to you but he's, he's not ready to fall on his face before you. We know that, Lord, there's some here in a, in, a, in a boat this morning who have not even begun to move towards you. In fact, maybe they're gaining steam and they're getting away from you. And Lord, your call to each of us is still the same. Come to me. You beckon each of us in your grace no matter where we find our heart this morning, rebellious, partially pseudo-repentant, and others who are broken, humbled before your grace. Lord, I pray that that's the place that you bring to each of us too, no matter what you have to do to get us there. Humble our hearts before you. Today we want to say thank you, Jesus, for going to the cross for us. We thank you for giving us the opportunity to partake in communion together. 
There's a great privilege that you've afforded us in doing this as a body. I pray, Father, as we come to worship in this way, that you would be pleased with our worship, that you would be honored and glorified by our worship, and that our hearts would be humble before you. We thank you, God, for your forgiveness. We thank you for your unfailing love. We worship you for your scandalous grace. May you be glorified and honored here. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please come. and created to bear it alone I hear your invitation to let it all go and I see it now I'm laying it down and I know that I need you I run to the done with the hiding, no reason to wait. My heart needs a surgeon, my soul needs a friend, so I run to the Father again and again and again and again. Son for redemption, the price for my heart, and I don't have a context for that kind of love. I don't understand, and I can't comprehend. All I know is I need you. I run to the Father. I'm done with the hiding, no reason to wait. My heart needs a surgeon, my soul needs a friend. So I run to the Father again and again and again and again.
Lord has been in your sights long before my first breath. Running into your arms is running to life from death. And I feel this rush deep in my chest. Your mercy is falling out just as I am. You pull me in and I know I need you now. Run to the Father. I'm falling to grace. I'm done with the hiding. No reason to wait. My heart needs a surgeon. My soul found a friend. So I run to the Father again and again. I run to the Father. I fall into grace. And I'm done with the hiding. No reason to wait. My heart found a surgeon. My hope found a friend. So I run to the Father again and again. stand and sing this last chorus together. I run to the Father, I fall into grace, I'm done with the hiding, no reason to wait. My heart found a surgeon, my soul found a friend, so I run to the Father again. prayer this week for us church is that we don't overcomplicate the gospel I know I need it in my life so bad the overthinking sometimes the anxiety sometimes just the outright unwillingness to listen to the Holy Spirit and his leading and guiding so father this week God as we ask often let us be your hands and your feet God everything that we say and do, God, bring honor to you, bring glory to you, Father. May this world see difference through us, God, and even speak if we need. Amen. Amen. Now, the God who is mighty, the Lamb who is worthy, and the Spirit who is near, fortify you to live faithfully in these days and all the days until Jesus comes. Amen.